Oh, thanks to our choir for that. And uh, nice job over there, too, Angela. Special day, special day. I want to continue us in our extraordinary story today with a story from Luke's 18th chapter, beginning with the 9th verse. And I would invite you to stand in honor of the reading as you're able as we hear Luke's word for us today. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Well, let me start off by asking a question. How, how many of you have been watching Downton Abbey on Sunday nights? Coming on in, a few of you. Yeah, okay, all right. You know, Maggie Smith is one of the uh, one of the stars of that series that's been playing on public TV and. And she's just one of those that I, I love to watch. She has that, uh, that way of portraying this proud aristocracy, you know. She's just got it down. Some folks have said that Boston patriarchs are, um, are the most supremely right and proud people in America. A visitor was introduced to one of these ladies uh, at a Boston gathering, and she says, well, where are you from, young man? And, and he says, well, I'm from Idaho. Well, she smiled with this little gentle courtesy and says, I know, dear, that you won't take offense if I tell you that around here we pronounce it Ohio. <laughs> Many times pride does goeth before a fall. Sometimes in our pride we find that we're way off base. Did you know that every Jewish man began his day with the following prayer? Lord, I thank you that I am not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. Hmm. Don't you know that every woman in the neighborhood loved that one? But then this Pharisee in our story for today takes this just a bit further. Says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves and rogues and adulterers, or even this tax collector. And don't you know that the tax collector listening to that this fellow's taxes are going to be going up. But this isn't a parable about taxes or Pharisees. This is a parable about justifying grace and about God's judgment on the proud. It makes its point by Luke's familiar reversal of fortunes. You remember? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who would exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who who humble themselves 
will be exalted. In essence here, Luke tells us that pride, even in your own righteousness, is no passport to the kingdom. In essence, Luke is saying to us that the gate of heaven is so low that you can only enter upon your knees. Some of you uh, have been to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem and seen uh, what that church is like. It was a Byzantine church built by Constantine's mother, Helena, uh, to commemorate, of course, the birth of Christ. And it has underneath what is now the main floor of the church, they've revealed Byzantine mosaic flooring that's just tremendous. But one of the changes that has taken place in the development of that church through the years is what was once a beautiful Gothic arch doorway was, during the years, shortened because invading armies were marching back and forth through Palestine from crusaders to Muslims to Turks, all sorts of folks. And they wanted to keep the church a sacred place. And so they enclosed the Gothic doorway and created a doorway to enter the Church of the Nativity that is about the size of this pulpit. The only way to get in is either by getting down on your knees and crawling through the opening, or if you can, just stoop way down in order to make it through. They did that not to humble people so much, but to prevent horseback riders and camel riders to come, in, come through the door on their mounts and desecrate the church. Perhaps all of our churches, though, should have doors like that. No wonder. Pride is the first of the seven deadly sins and the one into which we are most likely to fall. You fall into pride when you lack trust in God and God's mercy, trusting in your own capacity to earn your way. A woman who was a regular churchgoer complained about the ways in which the hymns that they were singing and the rituals that they were saying asked her to mourn her sins and to acknowledge and bewail her manifold wickedness and suggested weeping and grieving and confessing. And when she said that she didn't feel that way at all about her sins, her pastor replied, well, I have to admit that you seem to be bearing up under the burden of your sins with considerable cheerfulness. Hmm. Why do we so intensely hate to be wrong? What is this drive in us that wants to always be supremely right all the time? It can be explained in a single word, pride. Now, I'd always heard, quoted from Scripture, that the love of money is the root of all evil. But some believe pride to be the parent sin, the root of all that we call sin, the thing that rots human personality to its core. C.S. Lewis calls pride the essential vice, the utmost evil, the great sin, and at the same time consent contends that there's not a single person in the world who is free from it. There's no fault which makes a person more unpopular. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. C.S. Lewis again says that without a doubt it is the parent sin, the original sin, and it leads to every other kind of sin. 
Reinhold Niebuhr, who is often referred to as the 20th century theologian of sin, described four types of pride. He summed up base, uh, humanity's basic sin, our unwillingness to acknowledge our creatureliness along with our propensity to self-elevation in that one word, pride. And he gave four types. The first one is the pride of power. Pride of power. Which shows up when one person has or seeks to hold power over another. Pride of power says, I've got the power and I'm going to hold it over you for the benefit of me and mine. You know, a rather proud, pompous man showed up at the office of a prominent lawyer. The lawyer was busy and asked the young man to take a chair, but But the young man just, uh, he was impatient and he interrupted the lawyer. He said, but I'm Bishop Nelson's son. Well, basically saying, I've got the power. I'm important. Well, the lawyer just said to him, well, by all means, take two chairs, you know. Sometimes we get so excited about who we are and how big we are and how important we are that we forget Our pride overcomes us. Pride of power. Secondly is intellectual pride. And it rises from human knowledge that pretends to be ultimate knowledge. It presumes to be final truth. Intellectual pride says, I'm right, you're wrong. Always have been and always will be. There was a scholarly missionary who was uh, touring some missionary outposts in Africa and he was in a canoe with a fellow paddling him across a wide river. And during the conversation with the canoe's paddler, he just, I don't know exactly how this came up, but he asked the man at the back of the canoe if he'd ever uh, read any of the works of Plato. (laughs) Well, the Man says, well, no, I don't suppose I've ever had any opportunity to read the works of Plato. Well, the scholar says, what a pity. Some of the most profound writings that have ever been given in human history. Well, a few moments passed and the paddler asked the scholar if he knew how to swim. And he said, well, uh, no, in fact, in my life, I really have not had the opportunity to learn such trivial pursuits. And the canoe paddler says, well, what a pity. The canoe has just developed a leak. (laughs) Intellectual pride. Many times we just want to be so right and make other people so wrong. And then there's moral pride. Moral pride claims that its standards for virtue test and measure all righteousness. Niebuhr observed that most evil is done by good people who just don't know that they're not good. Moral pride says, if you can't live by my moral standards, then you are immoral. And you know, church people can be as bad about this as anyone else. In Matthew's seventh chapter, Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, in verses three through five, these words. Why do you see the speck that is in your neighbor's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. But we want to be right. Moral pride. Because, you see, the gate of heaven is low. And it's too low for those who hold themselves above others. We should be careful. And lastly, there's spiritual pride. It comes from self-glorification. It claims that your own righteousness parallels God's righteousness. It was Adam's and Eve's temptation from the serpent. Spiritual pride says, I can know what God knows. But it is with great caution that you should ever say to someone, God wants you to so-and-so. God wants you to so-and-so. Very humbly should you ever claim to speak for God. But some folks are all too willing. Clarence Day said of his dad, Father expected a good deal of God. He didn't actually accuse God of being inefficient. But at prayer, he tended to sound like a dissatisfied guest at a carelessly managed hotel. (laughs) But heaven has no room for the proud. In fact, the gate of heaven is so low that none can enter except upon their knees. The gate of heaven is low It's too low for those who hold themselves above God. In this story today, the Pharisee says, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not this and that and this and that. And we need not paint the Pharisee as a villain and the tax collector as some sort of hero. The Pharisee represents complete dedication to his understanding of the law, of what God is calling him to be and how he's calling him to live. The tax collector, or the publican, as he's often called, was religiously unclean, and politically he was a traitor to his people. The Pharisee trusts in himself, but the publican trusts in God, and that's the difference. You see, the conquest of pride comes when we set our life beside God's life. There was a family that loved to go to the mountains. They made their way up to the Rockies and they uh, were hiking one day. They looked up and they saw a, a house way, way up the mountain. And it was white and contrasted to the gray rocks and uh, scree that had fallen down as the mountain eroded. Uh, it looked just amazingly brilliant. And it almost drew them, called them to it as they hiked that day. They came back in the winter. And as they they were getting ready to go out for a day of skiing, they couldn't wait to see their little white house up on the hill because it had just drawn them so. But as they went outside and made their way up the ski lifts, they looked up and they saw this rather dingy-looking little white house set up in the snow. 
The difference was what they were comparing it to. And what we're called to do is not so much to, call, uh, to compare our lives to the neighbors that are around us, but to compare our lives to God's, to the life of Jesus, the things he said and the way he carried himself, the people with whom he interacted, the lives that he touched, the way that he did. And when we can do that, we find that maybe the heaven that calls for us to enter in a low estate can be the place for us. Three challenges for this week. The first one's kind of hard, and that is to identify one area in your life in which you are most likely to be guilty of pride. And then the question, are you too proud to share that with a friend. The second one has to do with our generosity Sunday that's coming up. Maybe you found yourself on the little step chart that was in your bulletin today. Here's the caution. Be careful not to get too puffed up as you prepare prayerfully your commitments for generosity Sunday. And then third, Pray for St. Matthew's and its ministries as we move toward another opportunity of a new year, the year 2014, as God is calling us and leading us. As we close our service today with number 382, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, we're called to, um, to His way, not our way but his way, that God would have his way with our lives. And to think of God as a potter shaping and molding and forming us is a tremendous thing. Put yourself in the hands of the master today and let him make something beautiful out of you. If God's calling you to respond in some way, then respond. If he calls you to crawl to the altar respond. If he calls you to be a part of the St. Matthew's Fellowship, we invite you to join us as we sing this, the first and the last stanzas of 382.